0: There are two important trends that are powerful shaping forces for not just regional, but global politics and business today. The first is the continued growth of importance of Asia by almost every measure. Asia is more and more the global center of gravity in everything from politics to economics, whether it be the raw number of people with over 60% of the world's population, to business and trade with several of the world's largest and fastest growing economies, to classic security issues with growing tensions, arms races, renewed rivalries. The second trend is the deepening of cybersecurity issues in the region. Asia has seen major cybersecurity concerns grow at the state level, with nearly every Asian state building up some kind of offensive cyber capability. It's happening at the gray space level of espionage, where it crosses with the private sector, with several hubs of intellectual property theft campaigns in Asia. And finally, at the business level, where Asian companies are roughly 80% more likely to be breached, with the median time between a breach and its discovery. 520 days. So cybersecurity, business, Asia becoming key important issues. Welcome to the cybersecurity podcast where we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. My podcast partner, Sarah Sortra, is out this month. So I'm excited to be joined by a guest from Down Under. Tobias Wiecken is director of the National Security Program and head of International Cyber Policy Center at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He was previously director of the National Security and Resilience Department at the Royal United Services Institute, as well as been appointed by the Australian Prime Minister to serve on the independent panel of experts for the Australian Cybersecurity Review. Most importantly, Toby is the force behind a new report, 2016 Asia-Pacific Cyber Maturity Metrics. This report examines where each nation in Asia stands in its cybersecurity with indicators that range from business engagement to military use. Toby, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be here, Peter. So let's jump right in. Tell us about the report. How did your team put it together? Why did they put it together? Wow. So let's let's start at the beginning. We we put
1: this report together because we down under, down in Australia, we're having so many private sector companies coming to us, and just saying, "Hey, what's going on in the region? Uh, we we want to do business in Singapore. We want to do business in South Korea, Laos, Myanmar, and it's such a patchwork quilt, and we do not understand what's going on in terms of cybersecurity across the region. How do you guys view the region? governmentally, we were getting the same question. So in the end, it became quite obvious. As a think tank, we needed to provide some sort of answer and um, good, rich information source that people could use in order that they could understand what was going on. So a huge amount of work goes into this. To be frank, each year it's our main product, uh, four staff working on it, researching tirelessly to get this report out. And, and what does it offer people? Well, it gives them a, a quick snapshot Of the region how well are countries developing their policy cycles in response to the threat how well are their their business communities getting themselves involved in the digital economy and taking advantage of all of those good opportunities you mentioned in your intro what are the military doing in cyber difficult question to ask because so much information's hidden in you know dark secrets of different countries but um you know from what we can find out how a military is adapting, and then also what are, what a countries doing in terms of having that discussion? A lot of countries don't have the opportunity to you know, have podcasts, have public discussions on cybersecurity issues, and you know,
0: as far as we're concerned, that's a discussion that needs to be happening more across the region. So you use the phrase uh, patchwork to describe what's going on in Asia. What's being done well in cybersecurity? What's being done poorly? Great question. What's being done well? Well, what's being done well
1: is that the, uh, firstly, before the cybersecurity question, the connectivity rates are going up through the roof. Um, You know, you're still only talking about maybe a third of the regional population who are online. So that means that there's just, what an opportunity for businesses, for individuals to become more connected, to have that freedom of expression, access to all sorts of resources online. That's fantastic. But... Um, what's being done badly is that the education piece isn't coming alongside that. And a lot of new emerging economies are making these leaps into highly connected society models, but without that degree of knowledge and cybersecurity being baked in at the ground level. And if they were, that would help create a far more robust or resilient digital economy and society um, at the outset, but we simply don't see that happening. What's being done well in other places, uh, perhaps in the more developed countries in the region, um, is the fact that countries are this is a great Australian term they're gripping the problem up. Um, they are looking at cybersecurity and how do they deliver that for the nation. They are creating centralized models of governance structures in order that they can deliver cybersecurity to businesses to their societies. What are some examples of countries? Doing um, let's look at Singapore. So um, you know. About 18 months ago now, they came up with a cybersecurity master plan. It called for a new cyber authority to be established. And within 12 months, they'd already established that authority. They'd already harnessed cross-agency support for that. Um, No mean feat. Okay, Singapore, tightly knit country, um, but still no mean feat but they have a requirement they have to do that because some of the decisions they're making around smart city development and the internet of things they are making leaps forward um, that many countries would be envious of. So they have to make those developments. Similarly, Japan has broken down enormous numbers of uh, institutional boundaries between departments in order that they can respond rapidly to what is a very serious threat there, not only based around the 2020 Olympic hosting, where they realized they're going to become an increasing focus of attacks from criminals and states, um, but also the public um, became fed up with some of the breaches that they saw, um, especially around uh, pension schemes. So, you know, there's, there's this push factor for them to do better. So we're seeing some great policy development um, in some areas, in the more developed areas. But at the other end of that scale, um, we're seeing enormous numbers of people coming online in the region with little or no understanding of what cybersecurity would mean. And that, that's a danger because it means that, you know, all these great opportunities that might
0: exist could actually fall flat. So who's handling this poorly then? You know, you named good names. Or are you willing to name you know bad names? Yeah, sure.
1: No, I mean, and, and, you know, perhaps it's a bit unfair because some of these countries are at the beginning of their digital journey. But you look at countries like uh, Myanmar, Laos, Cambodia, um, they're really at the beginning stages of understanding what policy, what good policy should look like in this space. Their connectivity rates are in the single figures. I mean, a country like Cambodia, um, only 0.5%, Five percent of the population actually have a fixed broadband connection that's, you know, that's incomprehensible to most Americans who it's just everyone has one of these connections. That said, forty-two percent of the population have a mobile phone internet connection. So it's not that people aren't in are in are entirely unconnected, but it begins to show you how um, nascent the discussion is in comparison to a country like
0: Singapore, where the connectivity rates are you know eighty-five percent plus. But one of the things you've spoken about is how the countries that are at the start of this journey are making decisions now about what they do, how they structure, who they take aid from. That could have consequences over the long term. That could even be uh, essentially lock them into a certain cybersecurity approach. Absolutely. So let's look at the case study of Myanmar or Burma, depending on on you know which 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 name you
1: use. Um, there's a country with a very distinct military history and background. The military had a very strong role in information control during those previous years. The military actually still have a role in trying to deliver cybersecurity for that emerging economy. Um, So that could have a very distinct um, translation of how cybersecurity is delivered. And and what we're concerned about is that that leads to overbearing policy, which is heavy on content control, um, is over highly regulated and has a very government focus on what the internet looks like within that country countries around the region, the bigger players, the US, China, uh, and Australia as well, to a degree, are looking to influence those digital journeys. Um, But clearly, China has a huge amount of influence on those countries close to it, like Cambodia, Myanmar and Laos. And they are influencing both at that policy level, and also at that technological level through direct technological capacity building. Um, So there's Clearly the danger, as far as I'm concerned, that the translation of Chinese policy could then be absorbed straight into countries like Laos, which means that they begin delivering um, an internet which is very state heavy and state controlled. Tease that out further. Sure, no
0: problem. What are the dangers you see in that? Well,
1: the dangers are are, are that, you know, you, you begin commenting about anything online, you make a nice podcast like this, listen to there's legislation in place that mean that if you've said something out of turn um, which is disrespectful to the government or others then you can be arrested for that um, you know that's certainly not something so the
0: concern you have is more the freedom of speech information control yes versus uh, building in vulnerabilities as an example um, that, that that could also be an issue too I mean it also concerns me
1: that if the state is too overbearing in terms of the interpretation of the internet well then that does doesn't allow for all the the kind of startup communities begin to take hold of some of the freedoms that the internet enables. And we're seeing some amazing nascent startup communities in places like Vietnam, which are taking advantage of and, you know, increasing freedoms online to be able to take advantage of, you know, disruptive business models. So that's my concern is that at all levels you stifle creativity, you stifle economic opportunity um, and you also stifle freedom of speech if you begin taking those interpretations of what the internet looks like.
0: So how do we deal with that? What are your, you know, suggestions for the policy side of this? Do we go after it in bilateral, multilaterals? What are key governmental takeaways from the report? Sure. Well,
1: certainly something that we look at is look at how countries are investing in the international discussion. So we try and assess what level of bilateral engagement do countries have. Um, Often that's most important between states that maybe rub up against each other in cyberspace um, so they can get a bit of a degree of commonality of understanding of their different positions. But also it's very, very important that we have that Um, multilateral discussion that takes place predominantly through uh, something called the ASEAN Regional Forum, uh, which is a grouping of uh, Southeast Asian states. Mm -hmm. in, In trying to get to some sort of common understanding of what Um, capacity building looks like, uh, what policy development looks like, and how nations can assist one another in that cycle. So, So we would score countries very highly if they had a high degree of bilateral engagement and were talking regularly about these issues. And secondly, they were investing in multilateral discussions too. Because this is a subject that's for so long been hidden in the secrecy of intelligence agencies and militaries, um, that you know both you and I, Peter, are going through this journey of trying to make it a far more public discussion. And a lot of this doesn't necessarily need to rest within, you know closed circles okay the capability always will but the policy discussion needs to be outside of that because it involves the public so directly mm-hmm. so you know we rate countries very highly that are willing to engage in that uh, uh, that broader discussion um, and try and reach you know these, these kind of mutually beneficial sweet spots in the discussion.
0: Who's making the biggest shifts in the survey? I mean, you mentioned Singapore as someone that's implementing fast. Are there other nations that that jump out as rapidly changing in this space? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't mean simply in terms of um, gaining access, but in terms of developing their cybersecurity policy capacity, filling in the blanks, so to speak.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, overall, what we see is a, a slow incremental changes, to be honest, from different countries actually Australia, where, where you know me and my colleagues are from, we've made a, a reasonable leap up the charts this year. And that's because finally, after six years of waiting, a, a new cybersecurity strategy has come out. I and mean, it's still phenomenal that it took six years for that to happen in such a fast moving space. But anyway, it's there. So we acknowledge that and it moves up. Often where you find the interesting changes, it's within looking at certain key areas of judgments that we make. So. You know, it will come as no surprise, and we'll use it because everyone loves talking about North Korea because it's such a, a strange state in many respects. You know, not surprising to anyone that we rate it so lowly in terms of its connectivity rates. But, you know, would it surprise people to know that North Korea rates easily within the top 10 of military militarized states in terms of their... Application of offensive cyber capabilities. Well, you know, to you and I, it might not, but actually, to broader members of the public, it might. Um, they they clearly are making huge advances in the, in that area, and that's worrying, especially with a state like North Korea, which Doesn't seems to it. not put them in a, in a
0: weirdly um, uh, good cybersecurity yeah. position? I put that in quotation marks. If you have uh, strong offensive capability and low levels of um, linkage, it actually reduces your vulnerabilities. That put them in a very different position than the rest of Asia. You know, what, I'm thinking back to uh, Richard Clark's book, uh, The Cyber
1: War, which, my God, when was that published? A few, few years back now. A great yarn when you read it. And, uh, you know, he, he talks about that same issue, exactly that. You know, they're in this great position. Well, y- yes and no. Y- yes, they are, because clearly they're having a disproportionate impact on South Korea. And having personally been up to Seoul just after the um, intrusion upon a nuclear energy facility up there, you could see the um, uh, the nervousness of South Korean policymakers. That said, you also saw in the wake of Sony how quickly their tiny internet structure was closed down. So yes, it puts them in a powerful position. I think the most worrying thing is, is just the fact that they act without any impunity. And I know they do that in all sorts of other areas. But many modern countries are still trying to understand truly what kind of effect can they deliver. And they're fairly reticent to be delivering that kind of impact via cyber weapons. North Korea, they don't act with that restraint. And that's deeply concerning because you just have this situation that could easily spiral so easily. And I know it could happen through a multitude of means, but they clearly see cyber means as just a, a really easy, effective way of delivering irritation, and, uh, but potentially disproportionate impact on the South.
0: This actually links to something that you've written on elsewhere, which is um, not just how to prevent breaches, but what to do in response. When you see breaches like Sony, or uh, you mentioned the one in in, uh, South Korea related to um, nuclear facilities, or now in the US, uh, as you and I are speaking, we're troubled by uh, the, it seems, politically motivated targeting of um, institutions like the DNC. Uh, All of these have been linked back to state actors, at least in the discourse, What's the proper response? What do you do not to you know, shore up your networks, but what do you do next? it's the billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, what, oh, it's what, more than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, oh my God. The amount that's been wiped off uh, companies and government's share. <laughs> anyway, what, what, what do you do next? Um, first thing is understand how you communicate with the public. Um, because what I see in a lot of cases is just really poor communication in what's going on and what governments are actually thinking about doing. Um, you saw it in the Sony hack, to be frank, um, that governments, you know, US government said one thing, oh, you know, this rests with Sony. It's it's a Sony issue and then changed their minds. And I, you know, I've had great debates with US policymakers over this and we'll never actually get to any kind of final agreement. First of all, have a communication strategy. That is the most vital thing. Understand that you have a public who are more educated about this and need to know a bit about what's
0: going on and what your strategy is. But also understand... I'm going to push you on that. I think you have a division. I think you have a um, public that's not The broader public, still not well-educated, kind of easily spun up into fear factor, but you have a cybersecurity community, whether it's companies, whether it's non-governmental experts, that is well-educated and so often messaging to one fails with the other or vice versa. Okay, and so, I think the Sony one is a great illustration of that. Absolutely. So, so therein lies ever more importance for good
1: sound communications. For those who are spiraling out of control in terms of thinking that this is the apocalypse, uh, the apocalypse is coming, um, you need to make sure that you're communicating with them so that they understand the parameters and as far as possible the realities of what's going on so that they don't take their perception of it way out there beyond what is actually
0: happening. And I see that happen in so many cyber instances. The second- Do you see that playing out in, in Australia? Are there similar examples of kind of the, the nation getting spun up or? Oh, God, 100
1: percent. We we just had an incident uh, which, to be frank, in terms of cyber instances, in terms of the malicious intent um, from what we can see on the outside was tiny. We, we were delivering the most recent Australian census online um, and at the peak traffic flow seven in the evening on the first day, it was there to be filled out by the public. It went down and the first thing they didn't have was a communication strategy so in the peak hours of traffic nothing was being said about what was going on and then the information vacuum is filled by whatever anyone wants to say about the issue then you have communication on from different ministers from different levels of government as to what was what was happening and then we found out essentially it was a mixture of events a low level ddos attack mixed with peak traffic flow of population using that. And so you get stuck in this cycle where it's um, it's actually a low level incident, but because of miscommunication to the public, it spirals out of control. And basically they got caught with this hashtag, which was census fail and the government Reputation reputationally got damaged hard. But I think, you know, in that broader, if it, the bigger cyber instances, you talk about, you know, what's going on with apparently the Russians interfering with political process here. What do governments do? Well, the one good thing that's happened for, for America is it's now a political issue. And I think politicians understand they stand to lose votes if they do not do something. But there's a temptation to think that because it's a cyber incident, you have to respond by cyber means not true. You know, you've got so many different levers of government that you can scale up and escalate to, depending on the severity of an incident. I think there's an assumption because it's delivered by cyber means you have to act quickly. And that you know, your response has to be instant. Actually, the opposite is often true. It's Mm -hmm. very important to stop, reflect, and think very carefully about what you're going to do before you do it. Because if you act too quickly, you might be hitting the wrong person. Um, You might be taking a course of action, which is completely um, counterproductive to what you're wanting to achieve. But I will say this, what the Russians are doing right now if it turns out to be Russians, which I think we all assume, and Hillary definitely said that, um, has said that in the presidential debate debating process, there needs to be some kind of response because they're changing the game. They are changing the game in cyberspace in a way that requires a response and I think a coordinated response from governments because they are just crossing boundaries that I didn't actually think I would see this soon. Mm. Mm. Um, and I mean, in terms of their manipulation of information, the data breach, then the dumping of that information, the use of the, you know, basically weaponization of data. Um, and and again, using that in a context against the, the greatest nation on earth, the United States of America, you know, if that's not met with some severe responses, and I mean, you know, it might be economically, uh, diplomatically, those kinds of responses, then That means that the bar has just been raised in terms of what we think is acceptable in cyberspace. And I think currently we're starting to get to a slightly dangerous spot in terms of what is acceptable in cyberspace. Um, And if we don't respond
0: quite strongly, the Russians will keep pushing that higher. So, you have touched on um, two of the boogeymen uh, in this space North Korea. uh, You just went into Russia. Um, There's a central one when it comes to discussions of the Asia Pacific, uh, and that's China. How do you evaluate China's uh, cyber maturity in the metrics? Uh, And then, secondly, What's the effect that you're seeing of these recent uh, bilaterals, for example, between the U.S. and China agreeing not to engage in IP theft and the like? So first is where does China stand overall? And then are you seeing an effect in sort of the change of um, negotiations over the last year? Sure. I mean, in
1: terms of the assessments we carry out, China would probably surprise some because there's an assumption because of the public uh, discussion around China. I think there would be an assumption that China would be in that top tier of the top five m- cyber mature countries. No, it's not. It's it's actually far more down into the mid-level. And that's because um, such a, a large country still has a lot of of a development cycle to go through in terms of its absorption of digital economies, of its policy structures, um, but it's advancing. And, And I think if you asked me that same question in five years time, it would be absolutely in that top two. And actually, you know, having had this report examined quite extensively in China, Chinese colleagues tell me, you know, actually your assessment's very accurate. And China's got some enormous internal problems in terms of cybercrime and, okay, yeah, you know, we will say China's hitting everyone else, but actually internally, because they've got a booming economy, they get hit massively as well. And I'm not, I'm not being an apologist by any stretch of the imagination, it's just staying fact. In terms of, What's going on because of that bilateral discussion? I think the bilateral discussion between the U.S. and China is is massively important. It's about setting again those cyber norms of behaviour. Um, it's very important, and I think you know the U.S. has been great that they've called out bad behaviour because it's started to bring that discussion out into the open as to whether that discussion has led to this downtick, if you like, in in IP theft from Chinese sources. Um, My my jury's out on that front because what you've seen alongside that is President Xi centralizing control of cybersecurity under his own jurisdiction, um, trying to grapple control of the various enormous agencies that have cyber capabilities. Um, and alongside that, he, he's essentially trying to rein in some of the corruption that's going on there and rein in, if you like, some of the, the generals who might be collecting IP for their own pockets. Mm-hmm. And I think he's having an impact there. But what you're also seeing is this in massive internal structural fight within the Chinese system for primacy. And you see that in a lot of the doctrine and documentation that does actually make it out of the woodwork in China. So I think what you're seeing is, okay, yes, the discussion is helping. Um, Naming and shaming is helping. Uh, I I don't think Xi likes being called out in public by the US, especially when he's looking to be perceived on a par uh, as a great power, the same as the US. But I think it's probably more down to the point that we used to perceive China to be, if you like, good at delivering an enormous amount of uh, nefarious cyber activity, but maybe not quite being as sophisticated. I think that sophistication is creeping up, Mm. which leads to less uh, awareness, if you like, of when it's happening. So I think that's probably where more I'd lean to. But that discussion is vital. Long may it continue and long may others get involved in that too and not be worried about getting involved in that.
0: So let's shift to a more positive question to end on. So you were involved in Australia's efforts to develop a uh, cybersecurity strategy. And you talked about how it was a long uh, effort, took about six years, but now it's in place. What are some lessons that you think the U.S. can learn from how Australia has approached this strategy building? That's a great question. I'm gonna to have to pause
1: and think. No. What Australia has is this amazing opportunity in many respects. Because it's taken six years to get there, it's actually got some quite interesting programs that it's rolling out. Having learnt from other Allied partners and and looking at other strategies, it's almost got like a tabula rasa to start from. Not quite, but almost. So so it's doing some great stuff now because it's got a very heavily focused SME economy. It's doing some good work with the SMEs. It's invested a lot of money. SMEs. Sorry, small to medium enterprises. God, listen to me with stupid acronyms. And what it's trying to do is increase... Uh, Those small to medium enterprises, small businesses, um, their awareness of cybersecurity issues and it's it's invested many millions of dollars in this um, and is trying to target certain parts of its SME industry base so that the bar is raised for them. Um, and and that I think is useful. You know, the U.S. does lots of useful work in that area, but I think I think Australia could end up with some real world's best practice in that space because of the makeup of its economy. In terms of its university development, I think what you're seeing at the moment is almost like startup time in universities. The universities are. Just you know, you can't move now for good cybersecurity programs in Australia, and and that's a great place to be. There will be centres of excellence set up soon, which means that there'll be benchmarking of who does what best. Mm. So I think Australia also could stand to benefit from becoming a real educational hub for cybersecurity skills, um, and that also now you're seeing it in terms of the uh, the business startup communities, which have just boomed ever since the strategy came out. They've sensed that 2016 is the year of cybersecurity in Australia, and they're taking advantage of tax breaks, of um, economic growth centres, or cybersecurity economic growth centres that are being established, and piggybacking off of that. So it's quite an, it's a really exciting time to be in Australia um, when you're looking at the issues we do, because there's a lot of focus on it. So I think in that sense. Again, if you ask me in a year's time what could America learn, I'm hoping that I'll be able to say that all of this excitement, initial investment, will lead to some pretty amazing tech, some amazing skills, um, and huge numbers of uh, great Aussies on the scene, other than myself, uh, talking about this issue and and driving things forward in the Asia-Pacific.
0: Well, we really uh, appreciate you joining us for the conversation. And as you may have heard in the podcast before, we'd like to end with uh, the same question for everyone, which is, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in the world of entertainment? And favorite can be defined either as you love it or you love to hate it. Wow. Can I have two? go ahead so so it's not so
1: much the delivery of cybersecurity as is um help form my my kind of fascination with what computers might offer and, and could do one of them's a bit cheeky it's the film weird science from the 1980s mm. which was just part of my upbringing i think we're not too dissimilar ages peter so you'll remember it for those of you who don't know it's a 1980s film of two you know teenage guys who are bored at home and basically use computer coding to try and try and develop the the ultimate girlfriend and And, you know, they developed this kind of... And so that's what got you interested in the field. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not such a good thing to say. But the second one actually is, and it's been like an important film in many respects in my life, um, not least of all because my dad, when he was young, used to look like him, Michael Caine. Um, It's a 1960s film called The Ipcris Files. And there was this amazing scene at the end where there's a computer that's used to um, influence people's thinking for, for evil. And I just love the kind of 1960s depiction of kind of strobe lighting and strange psychedelic lighting to show how a computer can shape someone's mind it, 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 and, and for me that it kind of uh, in a nasty way you could see my god this is what computers could do to you so and again another film that that, that shaped what I was thinking
0: about all those years ago um, in this area. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. And to the listeners, please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. You can subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can also follow Sarah, who will be back next month. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah Sorcher and sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit
0: newamerica.org.